It's about creating conversations that create conversations. Arrow.net, A-R-R-O-E.net. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Brian James Gage. I love it that you called in early, man, because I'm one of those people. Three hours early is six hours too late. And man, you are spot on. Be responsible. What's that feel like, being responsible? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Arrow. It feels pretty good. So, uh, <laughs> definitely gonna, after this, I'm going to take myself out for maybe a cookie. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you something. Be, uh, as we jump into this, uh, your name in the world of radio is is Brian James was a hero to a lot of people that are in the industry. And so when I first saw your name, I'm going, wow, wow, this guy's carrying a name that he probably doesn't know that he's got. I ask you, Brian James. What's, tell me about Brian James. Brian James was one of the most listened to voiceover um, at, at talents uh, um, in, in the industry during the 1990s and early 2000s. And his voice was like, when you heard him, it was thunder and lightning. I mean, you just, and you were right? drawn to what he was. And so, what, what, I mean, with a name like Brian James, and then, and then you've got what you've got with, with, with the way that you're writing, it's like, oh my God, there must be something with the name Brian James. Let's hope so. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny because I've been doing these. I've been trying to like you know, try to separate yourself from the noise uh, that's out there. I've been doing these video, uh, like little video promos for the book, and hiring proper professionals. So uh, one of the things that I've been doing is deep diving into hiring voiceover artists, and it's oddly becoming one of my favorite sort of uh, how do I guess you would call it like artistic. Um, endeavors in the sense like you don't really think of like a voiceover artist as an artist like mm-hmm. normal people just be like oh that's just somebody announcing something whereas now i can hear in people's voices just having to like because i'm listening for nuance now which is something that i didn't really do so even like when i hear your, like your voice on the radio i'm like man that's like buttery sweet you know like that guy you, some people have that radio voice it's very interesting well you know, a lot of people I, I, I always tell people that it, what it is, it's it's a product of generations before me and program directors that sat with me. And because, I mean, sure. when, when people go into radio, they don't know how to talk. It's, it's, it's like even with podcasting. They, you know, radio people have a difficult time with podcasting because it's a completely different voice. It's, it's, it's very interesting. The, 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 but it, it's an under, I, I think it's a weird thing. Like I said, I think some people are attracted to doing it. Whereas when you were a young person and you were looking up to your radio star idols other people are thinking about i don't know yeah. Accountants or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my idol was Casey Kasem. And it was, I mean, I, I was there all the time oh, yeah. and it was, hello again. I'm Casey Kasem from American top 40. <laughs> now that long distance dedication. That's actually pretty good. Dude, if you you saw this studio, the first thing, the moment you walk into this studio, Casey Kasem's picture is right there before you even step into this room. I mean, he plays such a major role in, because uh, communicating, it's it's like you as a writer, you are communicating, you are reaching people through your words. Yes. I actually consider it telepathy. Yeah. Uh, Which is, uh, I I don't, I, I, because I think of, uh, you know, I always think uh, not, not that I'm really necessarily pro-transhumanism in the sense of one day we will all become robots, but you know I, I think in that horror sci-fi realm. So I'm always thinking like, what what does this really mean? Like, what's the evolutionary step for communication? You know, you're a communicator. I'm sure that you think along these terms as well. But I, I think of books specifically as early telepathy devices. They just uh, didn't really think of it because if you think about it, I'm taking my thoughts and I'm using a machine to put it onto this piece of paper, which, you know, is still, it's an object, and someone thousands of miles away 
is envisioning my thoughts that I put down. <laughs> so I, it's, it's the amoebic form of telepathy. That's so funny you say that because the uh, I, I'm a journal writer. I've been a daily writer for for uh, 28 years, and and I've, I've I've adjusted my my writing now to where I will go, dear future reader, because because by the time that they find it, I mean I, I'm going to be long gone. That's like with with different podcast episodes and stuff. I'll say, dear future listener, this is what's going yeah. on right now. I don't know what your world looks like. So it's all telepathy, my friend. Uh, at least in my opinion, I just think that we is, we don't recognize it as telepathy yet because it's not my thoughts directly into your head. But that's coming. We're just trying, like the, you know, like through, through radio. I can hear your voice in my head now, even through this. This is a telepathy device that we're talking right now. Mm-hmm. The only differentiation is it's not from brain to brain. There's a device in between us. You but know, that doesn't make it any less telepathic. You, you know I'm going to write about that, Brian. I'm going to research the heck out of that, and I'm going to refer to you so many times. I'm going to say, you're not going to believe oh. what I just what I just heard from from Brian. Brian was, I mean, and, and they're going to go, what? I I didn't know. I, well, I hear, just so I could be fair and not be called a plagiarist <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, the, the initial inception of my idea about this came from Stephen King when I was in my, he wrote a book called, I think it was On Writing, that I read in my early 30s, and he sort of talks about the telepathy of life. And I just sort of extrapolated on that idea as I've gotten older. So where did you get the idea to turn the Red Baron into a vampire? I mean, Snoopy <laughs> from Charlie Brown was he always took on the Red Baron. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, I so many people ask me quite a bit as to where my ideas come from. And I can honestly tell you, I don't know. I, they just pop <laughs> I, I wish that I had some awesome. It's, I basically just sit around and think. I like to play in the. I like to play in the dark, and then I, I. I also try to think to myself, like I hate tropes, like the, the chosen one trope, or um, you know what the, the uh, like the, the the ugly girl that becomes hot after she takes off her glasses trope or, or whatever you know like all those dumb sort of things so I always try to think beyond the trope whereas because you know tropes exist for a reason because it's a means by which we can easily communicate with people it's sort of like euphemisms you know when I say six of one half dozen of the other you know what I'm saying but it's like a weird like uh, someone who's new to English might be like what the heck does that even <laughs> you know so as far as the Red Baron becoming um, a vampire in my when I was creating the vampire mythology, I, I was looking at a bunch of different uh, folklore, everything from like Slavic vampires to um, you know just your classic how Bram Stoker developed his Dracula, things of that nature. I, I, I looked at the wide swath of I, I love folklore; it's one of my favorite things to study. And so, I, you know, the notion of uh, where vampires started was like a lot of rat people with rabies back in the day uh, or other you know diseases and, and that's how the sort of superstition starts and a lot of that stuff came from bats bats have echolocation as a main means so i thought my vampires in my book that's how they hunt is through echolocation and so when it was it came time to write a book that took place in world war one i'm like well i can't do world war one without the red baron right i mean that's and it would be really cool to make red baron sort of this i like to think of rod red baron in this book as my jaws <laughs> where it's like he's always sort of lingering in the sky, but you can't quite see him, but you know he's going to attack the people, you know? Like if there was a Red Baron theme, it would definitely be like, dun, 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 that's dun, it, that's dun, it. Dun, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I thought, well, the reason why he was historic is my the whole point of the book is history is a lie, and I'm telling you the truth. 
And the truth was, the reason why the Red Baron was so deadly accurate in the sky is because he was able to use his vampiric echolocation to shoot you down no matter what time of day it was, no matter where you were. He knew your motions before you even made them. <laughs> so, don't you love that when the, don't you love that when the creative mind will plant something inside the imagination? I mean, you least expect it, and all of a sudden you go, all right, let's go with it. Let me at least get it down on paper, and we'll grow with it. You know, I, I love that, but I don't love it when it comes to me at four in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the only thing I left, because back in the day, I'd like, wait, uh, like, oh, you know what, man? I'll just wait until morning and I'll write it down. Yeah, it's gone. And then I forget. So now if I wake in the middle of the night, I'm like, wait a minute, Red Baron's a vampire. Hold on. Then I got to run to my computer, start typing it all down. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's sun up, but I've got four chapters with that's every bit the reason why I created an iHeartRadio channel called Creativity is the Addiction. Because we, when, when you are a creative mind, it, when it hits you, 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 it's like you're addicted to it. You've got to feed the monster. Yep. You, it's, it's a real bummer. I mean, it's, it's, here's, it's, a, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. because, And I find one of the curses is the fact that like, people that don't, like if you right now said, yo, i got to end this interview, bro. i just got an idea. i got to write it down. Like, Go do your idea, man. I get it. But we're like non-creative people. They just think we're a bunch of psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand why we would want to stay up until five in the morning hashing out something that's like itching in our brain, you know? So how many wine glass moments did you have where it took a glass of wine or a sip of something and all of a sudden you took a chance on the writing and you knew that, that it was going to take you a little bit off the, pr- the path, but all of a sudden you realized, no, it needed that moment. Um, you know, are, are you talking about as far as like relaxing to get into the creative process? Well, in, in the way that, I mean, I mean, the, the, in one of my books, I mean, I, I, the, when I did the rough draft, I mean, it was like, okay, this character was, a, was, was pretty strong. But then when I went back in and started editing, I went, you know what? I'm not feeling it. I'm killing this character off. And I did, but it was a wine glass moment. Ah, I, you know, interestingly enough, which is funny, I wrote, I write Stone Sober, uh, and that said, I'm an insomniac, and one of the things that helps me is like CBD gummies. Mm. And uh, at night when I'm laying in bed is when my ideas get, let's just say, a little bit more unique. Uh, <laughs> so I, I will, uh, I, I keep a little journal with a pen with a light on it uh, for those nights that I don't want to get out of bed. I'll just, I'll just write down some dialogue or I'll write down an idea, which is uh, how I came up with the form of Elizabeth Bathory in the book as well which is a spoiler so i'm not going to tell you what she's shaped like but it's pretty gruesome when when you plan out the book to to, to have the actual location of where the book is taking place i mean it's it's during a world war and right now in 2022 we we face that thing it's it's almost like you were called to kind of remind people world war is real it did happen we're going to put a twist on it but but it's real you know, it's funny that you say that because a lot of the stuff that um, I've been working with the publicist this time around, and he's been uh, encouraging me to write op-eds, and one of the op-eds I keep coming back with is, because um, you always see that stuff, you know, the, 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 the cliche of those who don't understand history are due to repeat it. And so when I was, my first books I wrote back when I was much younger uh, were sort of uh, very anti-totalitarian, little satire books, uh, but they were very didactic and a little bit sophomoric. Uh, and I've grown away from that because now my idea in writing is I just want to entertain, right? Yeah. But what I'm trying to do with the entertainment is put like, you know, when, you, when a dog eats a vitamin, you put the, the vitamin in the cheese. 
And I've sort of tried to do that through subtext and metaphor. Like my, I, I don't really, I, I like to keep politics quiet these days because mm-hmm. it's too much blood sport to, to discuss politics in public. And then as, a, as an author, I'm here to entertain you and I don't want to piss off either 50% of my audience. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Either way. So I just sort of, I, I like that. I think it's in polite company. We keep politics out of it, but I'm able to insert some of my um, you know, political ideas or ideas on the way that I think society might be going the wrong way if I use subtext and metaphor and <clears throat> so you can entertain people at the same rate and not offend their sensibilities and sort of leave that interpretation up to them. And I think it's a, it's a much more eloquent way of uh, engaging in discussion of subjects. Yeah, that is so funny that, that you put it that way, only because my father used to read Westerns, and, and and he would explain it in the way that you just did. It's almost like my dad stepped into your mind and said, look, I told you, if, if you're going to be a writer, you got to do it this way. And because, I mean, it, it, it you really get into who you, the, the reader is without offending the reader. You take us on a journey, a story, and then, I mean, and you've got this brilliant way of keeping people's eyes glued to those paragraphs. I think that that's the exact notion of if you're doing it right, you know, like I was having a conversation with somebody the other day on a podcast about filmmaking and they were saying Orson Welles, uh, he said the greatest curse of Orson Orson Welles himself was the greatest curse of my career is the fact that now I can't watch movies anymore because I see every cut, every edit, every light, every, everything. And so I think, but the differentiation is, there are filmmakers, filmmakers out there, like a Paul Thomas Anderson or maybe a Jim Jarmusch, someone like that, whereby um, they're such masters of illusion that even the masters don't see where the invisible wires are hanging. <laughs> right? And I think of writing as sort of the same technique. It's like, how am I going to... Because, look, when you're talking about war and you're talking about these things, even though it's in a fictional horror novel there's still a lot of range of commentary that you could be making, you know? Um, and I find that if it's done right, it's invisible. And then it's the sort of thing where it's true art because the interpretation is left to the reader. It doesn't matter how conservative or liberal you may be, you could potentially both walk away from the story feeling entertained and having your own ideas. Like, wow, you know, that World War One. I, I mean, I get it, it was vampires and werewolves and all this stuff is nonsense, but war is pretty bad. What are we doing in this, you know, then maybe they can start thinking about the notions of the present. Like, what are we really trying to achieve mm-hmm. with, because I'm super anti-war. That's one thing that I will disclose publicly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, my father was a Vietnam vet. And so I, 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 I see firsthand, um, you know, 30 years later, my father was still, he would travel back to Vietnam to try to cope with these, um, you know, to cure the ills of the past yeah. and try to get right with that. I don't think a lot of people consider um, a lot of the, the psychological damage that can be done, not just to the soldiers fighting the wars, but for generations, those scars can remain. Wow, 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 wow. And I, I mean that because my father did not talk about World War II. We, we brought him down to Charleston, South Carolina, down to Patriot's Point, paid an astronomical amount of money to be on this big ship. We were on there 30 seconds, and he says, get me out of here right now. And, I mean, did your father share yep. stories with you? Because my father would not, would not talk about it. My father started opening up about the Vietnam War when I was in my early 20s, and then, you know, once... Uh, he was he kept it very close to his chest most of his life and then i you know when i was older i became curious about it obviously because that's a heck of a thing so now what's interesting is my father is writing um 
his journals down. So he sent me one of his recent um, most interesting things. And some of the tales that he tells, I, I just, I mean, there was a point in time, I think, where he didn't see the inside of a building for almost mm. three months, mm. three to six months. He was just outside in the jungle for three months with a machine gun and people trying to shoot him. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, could you imagine what that psychologically meant? I'm like, Dad, how did you survive? And he's like, you just keep walking. That's what you have to do. It's like, you know, it's like there's a billionaire somewhere crying because he got the wrong tulip color in his garden. And that's just as significant as a problem if you're stuck in a jungle somewhere with people trying to shoot you. Like, either way, you know, the human instinct to survive your problem kicks in. Mm. And, you know, some people, I think, probably are more attuned for more dangerous situations, et cetera. But, when, you know, the training that they go through in Paris Island boot camp is uh, they, they weed out the weed from the chat pretty quickly. One of the things that, uh, part of the reasons why I created this channel, a View from the Writing Instrument, is because I know that that writers tune in, but these are hider writers. They're the writers that will pin things out and then they hide their writing. And as, as that writer, and as you allow those words to come into play, what do you personally take from e- each project? Because a lot of people don't understand that as writers, these become our soundtracks. It's not Bruce Hornsby. It's not Bruce Springsteen. These words are our soundtrack. That's actually a very interesting concept because I, you know, I, I, in a weird way, it would be the same thing. It's almost like I walk with my characters. Like when I have to kill a character off, oh. I, I, I feel kind of wow, man. He's got to be like I almost, I almost feel like in my mind that I need to have like like an HR rep present. Be like, hey, listen, we, we, we need you to sign some documents here. You've been great, but, but you know, the, the book is going in a different direction now. And uh, we think your position within the narrative, uh, although you've been wonderful, it's time for it to come to a close. So, you know, I think, I think that's sort of what it is. So anyway, yeah, I, I like that idea of being your soundtrack because you walk. I don't think people understand that, like, we walk with our writing almost as, as our, our clothing or our so armor. It's always on. I'm walking. When I'm taking a walk, when I'm walking to the grocery store, I'm not just looking like, do I want Cheerios this weekend? I'm like... I wonder what if I could write a cool story about, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> a guy that gets obsessed with Cheerios and can't, I don't know, I'm obviously not Oh my God. Either, Oh, that, that is so true because it took me maybe maybe 30 years to realize in my 43 years of radio that I didn't get into radio because I wanted to be a jock. I wanted to get into radio because my writer needed to be heard and and because everything that I've ever done is written down and, and it's it's like, yeah, that the writer is the one that's in control. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, I keep telling people that it's sort of an undiagnosed mental illness. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, because it has all the hallmarks of, of mental disorder. Like there, first of all, there's like, there is antisocial by its nature. You need to sit alone in a room. Don't talk to me. I'll be like that Jack Nicholson in the shining moment where she disturbs him while he's writing. Right. Every time I walk, you know, it's like, don't disturb me when I work. I'm like, well, I, I, I recognize that guy. Um, so there's the antisocial behavior. There's the immersion in fantasy worlds, right? And then there's the delusions of grandeur to think that, oh, well, everyone's obviously going to want to read this amazing story there. Oh my God! Um, do, do you have so to cre- it, do you have to create dates? And what I mean by that is, is that uh, at seven o'clock in the morning, I, I look at my wife and I say, "I'll see you in about five or six hours." I mean, and I'm only maybe twelve or thirteen feet away from her. I'll see you at twelve thirty. We'll have lunch, but I'll, I'm going to have to disappear after that. 
That's interesting. Uh, I think it depends on what I'm trying to work on. I My goal is when I'm actively working on a novel mm-hmm. is uh, people always say, well, how do you get a novel written? I'm like, you just keep writing. Yes. Uh, it's it, there's really no secret formula. I mean, I even the famous who was the uh, was it Hemingway that said uh, it's one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration. <laughs> yep. I think that was Hemingway, right? Uh, and that's basically <laughs> what it is. I try to get fifty. I, I recognize that my novels are generally in the area of a hundred thousand to one hundred fifty thousand words. So if I can write fifteen hundred words a day, which I generally can crank that out without much problem, I have a novel written in a hundred days. Wow. Now that could. That could be a terrible first draft, which generally, as you know, first drafts are, um, let's just say it's a good thing no one reads those besides your editor. But yeah, it's about a, it's a process of about three months or so to get something viable that, that I could start you know, thinking about, so essentially putting it into the ether. When, when you're putting that draft together, my, my guilty pleasure is, is that I go out and I buy a brand new Mont Blanc. My last book, I had the John Lennon Mont ah. Blanc. What, what do you do when it, when it comes to the drafting? Are you on the computer or are you, are you putting this in long form? I wish that I could give you some awesome romantic, I'm Oscar Wilde, and I use a certain type of pencil that I grind down with a certain type of sharpener with a certain type of paper, and the sun needs to be in a certain area for my inspiration. But the truth is, it's just like in between. When it, I, I'm more of a night writer. I'm not a night writer, yeah. obviously. Um, but I wish. I, if I could have a trim down, I'd be totally down with that. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't know what it is about evening time. That's when my creative little bug comes out. Uh, so I generally, my good, I, I'll write during the day. If I'm, I like to edit during the day. Like, hey, what, yeah. what kind of garbage did I produce last evening? And I'll wait and I'll look and I'm like, oh, I, I did pretty well. I didn't, you know, but some days I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, was I on drugs last evening? I don't really know. Um, I can't see that because this, this morning's review of my, you know, papers. But I could generally whip out uh, from 10 uh, at night until about 2 in the morning is when I'm like, that's when I know I've got my creative uh, zone kicking. Oh. Although I could force myself to do it at other times. Oh, my God. Brian, I could talk to you all day. You've got to come back to this show anytime, dude. The door is always, oh, always, it. always going to be open for you. You're a gentleman and a scholar, my friend. I appreciate the forum. Well, go look up Brian James with and, and go listen to the voice that that, that basically helped shape uh, the world of radio in the in the '90s and the new millennium. Because I mean, you're carrying a voice forward that if, I, I swear to God, if somebody in radio, you know, you talk to them, they're, they're going to say Brian James. Are, are are you connected to Brian James? But I and I know that you've got a last name and stuff like that. But it, but it's still it, it it just really does trigger you, is what it does. That, very interesting. You know, just to show you what a conscientious good boy I am, I've already, it's, I'm, as I'm talking to you, it's already Googled, locked and loaded, ready to go. So the very moment I hang up with you, I will be listening to Brian James' voiceover sampler. So. Well, you be brilliant today, okay, sir? I appreciate you, my friend. Have a good one. Thank you so much.